Well, good morning, family. If you guys have your Bible, go and grab those. And today we'll be reading from John chapter 4. Today we'll read from verses 27 through 42. I'm using the New American Standard Version if you're curious. So today we read the third and final episode of this story of the Samaritan woman at the well. And today is the final piece, and we will read verses 27 through 42. And as I read, what I want you to do is, as I read this section, I want you to look for the only command that Jesus gives his disciples. Notice verse 27. And at this point, Jesus' disciples came and they marveled, were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went to the city and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Messiah or the Christ, is it? Then they went out to the city and were coming to him. And then meanwhile, the disciples were requesting him, saying, Rabbi, eat. And he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Then his disciples were puzzled in verse 33. And they said, No one brought him anything to eat, did they? And Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say that there are four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and see the spiritual fields, that they are white for harvest. Already, one who reaps is receiving his wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case... The saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Verse 39. And from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed with them two days. And many more believed because of his word. And verse 42. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Amen. A harvest is before you and God wants to use you. That there is a field ripe for harvest, and God wants you to reap. God is working, and he wants you to be part of it. God is working, and he wants you to be part of it. But two things are required. Two things are required for us to partake in the harvest of souls in this world right now. I'm going to pray. And then we're going to dive in with that frame of reference. Heavenly Father, today we are here to hear from your word. Open our eyes that we may observe it. But Lord, let, us, uh, let it do more than just teach us something. I hope that happens. But Lord, that it would drive us to shape our lives and our actions. And Lord, I pray that we would see the field of harvest we would see how you are working and that we would see that it is our, our privilege to be invited into your work. And I pray that we would be a participants in your work right here and right now. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Before I became pastor here at Calvary Bible Church, as most of you know, I served as the youth pastor at Southside Baptist Church here in town. Uh, and that church had a little issue. Our location was great, but our location also caused us some issues. Uh, because we were close to the hospital, we used to have uh, countless homeless people come around. Uh, constantly, homeless people broke into our building. Uh, the senior pastor one time said that he was walking through the building at night and heard snoring. <laughs> uh, the homeless people slept under a building. I remember one Sunday morning, there was a person that was blocking the sanctuary entrance because she was sleeping right there. And then on the first day of the month, a swarm of people would come by for our monthly sweepstakes handout. We, as a church, saw them, but we failed to see them. We, as a staff, we, as a church, saw them, but we failed to see them. We saw the social norms. We saw their inconvenience, the safety issues. We saw their appearance, how they dirty things up. We saw their hair and their clothes. We saw them, but we failed to see them. We saw them through the lens of social norms, but we failed to see them as God saw them. That God did not look at them as an inconvenience, but as a soul worthy to save. God did not see them as something to be dismissed, but as a crop of souls to be harvested. Friends, a harvest is before you, and God wants you to be part. Allow me to just say it this way. A harvest of souls is before you every time you go to work, every time you go to school, every time you go home, in your neighborhoods, in your own home, in your family, that there are souls that God is working on that he wants you to partake in to harvest and to reap. The question we have is, will we be participants? And what is required for us to be part of God's will and God's plan and God's harvest? God is working and he wants you to be part the harvest of souls that we have today is the same harvest that they had 2,000 years ago. So if you have your Bible, go and turn in John chapter 4. Today is episode 3. It's the final episode in the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. And when we enter back into the story, what do we see? We see a Samaritan woman. And who is she? She is first a Samaritan. Who are they? The Samaritans are what? They are despised. They are hated. They are half-breeds compared to the Jews. The Jews have banished them to a portion of the nation of Israel. They have purposely been overlooked, dismissed by the Jews. And yes, this woman is a Samaritan, but who is she really? She is despicable in the eyes of her own culture that through the lens of her social uh, structure, through the lens of her culture, she is worse. She is far worse than being a Samaritan. In fact, that she is banished from the outcast. She is an outcast from the outcast. That her own people and her own culture have shamed her, have written her off, have tossed her away as a crumpled up piece of paper. That she is shamed by her people so much that she would rather walk a further distance and draw her water from a well in the sixth hour, which is the hottest part of the day, just to avoid the shame. She is the bottom of the barrel, an outcast of society, forgotten, tossed aside, dismissed, inconvenient, and a pest. And she is spiritually thirsty. 
Her society founds her worthless, but her Savior finds her worth it. Let me say that again. Her society finds her worthless, but her Savior finds her worth it. Because she comes to Jacob's well in the city of Sakar, and what does she find? She finds a random Jewish man there that promises her something called living water, and she's sitting there puzzled as to what this living water possibly could be. And he presents to her living water in verses 10 through 14. And then she uses that, that invitation. And then she takes her religious framework to understand what this, this man, this random Jewish man is offering to her. And then all of the pieces come together in verse 26 when he says to her that he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ. And then everything kind of comes together for her. And then at the end of verse 26, what happens? She leaves her water pot in the she runs away, the lights go down, the characters run off stage, and the props move. And then the new characters run on the scene. They come with food to their rabbi, to their teacher, and then they offer to him actual food. But what they don't see is that there is a lesson for them to learn then, and it is the same lesson that we should learn today. That there is a lesson that his disciples should learn in the first century, and it's the same thing that we should learn today. What is the lesson that Jesus is trying to teach his disciples? The lesson that they should see and that we should see today is really found in the three main pieces of this passage. We see the primary command in verses 35 through 42. We see their, their primary constraint, what is holding them back from learning this lesson in verses 30, 27 through 32. And then we see the primary choice that they must make in verses 33 through 34. Now, as I read... This text, now I would imagine some of us probably think reading that long of a scripture passage can be a bit laborious, but I find it absolutely necessary if I say it that way. But as I, as I read the scripture here this morning, I wanted you to look for the only command that Jesus gave his disciples. And what is it? What is the primary command he gives to them? Notice verse 35. Do you not say... That there are four, yet four months, and then comes the harvest. But I say to you, to the disciples, to lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. What is the primary command of this passage? It is for them to just look up and see the harvest that is before them. If you have your notes, the primary command is to look up and to see the harvest. What Jesus is doing is as they come back with the food, <laughs> Jesus just wants them just to, to, just to realize what's really going on. They think that they just went away to, to find food. But what Jesus wants them to do is he just wants them to just look up past their social norms, past their man-made constraints and culture. And he just wants them to look up and see the harvest. But what is keeping them back? What is holding them back from seeing and participating in the work of God? But I want you to think about something else as well. I want you to think about a harvest. How many of you have ever seen in Alabama a field white with cotton? Okay, probably most of us. Now, when you see that field white with cotton, what do you think in the back of your mind? 
So, okay, yeah, snow. I have a cotton field out beside my house. I think it's a cornfield this year, but anyways, moving on. Last year it was a cotton field. Okay, and, and last year there was this field white with cotton, and I remember it like it was yesterday for whatever reason, and, and I said, oh, that's nice. But what does a farmer think? Whose, whose land is that? They're thinking probably two things. Number one, cha-ching, right? They're thinking a big payday. But what else are they thinking? When a farmer looks at that field that is white for harvest, what are they thinking? They have a sense of urgency that now is the time to harvest the field. I believe it is the same for Jesus and his disciples. What is Jesus really telling them in verses 34 and 35 and on? That not only does, does Jesus want to invite them into the work of God, but now is the time. It is urgent for them to participate in the harvest of souls. But what's the role? What's their role in this spiritual harvest? Notice verse 36. I want you to notice the very first word I'm going to talk about here in just a minute. Notice their role. It says, already... He, but I want you to sub in the word the one there, because it's not he, it's an actual participle. I won't get into the details there. But verse 36, and it's important, I'll tell you why in just a second. Verse 36, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the one who sows and the one who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you, disciples, to reap. Now is the time to reap. The harvest is plentiful. It is before them. I sent you to reap. Now, for which you have not labored, others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. What is their role? What does Jesus want them to do right here, right now, to have a sense of urgency, not to put it off? What does Jesus want them to do? He wants them to reap the harvest of souls. But I want you to notice the very first word in verse 36, it is word already. What does that tell you? I'm going to read the whole verse. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life. What does the word already signal? That it is currently happening. So wait, wait, when Jesus says that in verse 36, that there is someone in that very time that is reaping the harvest of souls. Okay, so Jesus here is sowing the seed, so he's not harvesting souls at this moment. So, and the disciples are sitting there, they're bringing food, and they're completely clueless that right before them is a harvest that they get to participate in, and that now is the time. So, wait a second, if it's not Jesus, and it's not the disciples who's reaping a harvest, who is it? It's the Samaritan woman. What does she do? She immediately leaves her water pot and goes to her city, to the very people that have shamed her her entire life for her immoral behavior, that she has been married five times and now she lives with her boyfriend. The very woman that has been pushed aside, an outcast of outcasts, the one that has been thrown away, is the very one that is reaping a harvest of souls. What is Jesus trying to tell them? <laughs> The very person that you find despicable is the very person you need to be like. I find it amazing that Jesus would use somebody that in our culture would find 
we, we would find completely immoral, completely clueless, and Jesus and God uses this woman who has found, been found worthless in her society to do great and amazing things. I, I don't know what your sin is. I don't know what you've done. I don't know what mistakes you've made. But I can tell you this. If Jesus can use a woman that is outcast from society, then God can use any one of us. There is a harvest before you. God is working and he wants you to be part. Will you let your mistakes, will you let your sins cripple you from what really you can do for the kingdom of God? Listen to this thought from a scholar. It says this, the reaper in Jesus' story is the Samaritan woman bringing almost her whole city to the harvest of salvation present in Jesus' person. She is already getting paid with deep satisfaction that she is doing something profoundly helpful for her people. The very person the disciples find to be worthless, the very person that her society finds to be worthless, is the very person that God uses to reap a harvest of souls. And the disciples are meant to be just like that. The disciples are to reap a harvest, but then notice what is the harvest, what is the crop, so to speak. Verse 39, from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the, notice that, he told me all the things that I have done, probably wrong, is what she probably wants to say that, told me all the things that I have done, and they probably know it in the city. Verse 40, so when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with him, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word, and they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. What is the harvest? The harvest is one of souls, but it's specifically the souls of the Samaritans. So the very people that have been disregarded by the disciples themselves, the very people that have been banished to a certain section of the land of Israel, the very people that were meant to be forgotten are the very people that Jesus came to save. Friends, a harvest is before you and God wants to use you. There is a harvest of souls that is outside of this building. There are people that God is working on right here, right now in the city of Huntsville. And there is a harvest out there waiting for people to partake in God's work. But if we're honest, we right now in our culture, can I just pick on our culture and society? Uh, we in our culture, we are far more consumed with the locusts. Than we are with the harvest. We right now are more consumed with the locusts than the harvest. We are more consumed with the locusts, with the problems, with the obstacles of the world we, than we are about God's business. We are more terrified and scared and frightful of COVID and the work of the enemy to rip apart this nation than we are consumed about how God is working in this time. Can I just speak bluntly? Oftentimes, people turn to the Lord when they are fearful. I believe this, that the Lord is working in our season. Yes, our nation is divided, it is ripped apart. Yes, there are, are, is an obstacle, but they are locusts compared to the harvest. 
Are we going to let the locusts, the obstacles in the world right now, deter us from reaching people that we contact every day? God is working at our jobs, in our neighborhoods, in our homes. God is working to harvest souls with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he invites us to be part of that work. Will we be part? I'm not sure I understand this next part, but that it, it kind of blows my mind in my finite small brain. Um, <laughs> I find it amazing that the creator God of the universe, the one that created protons, neutrons, and electrons, the one God that created chromosomes, the God that created a ball of gas that I feel outside that is now 93 million miles away from earth, that the God of the universe invites me in to be part of his work right here, right now, and that the harvest is urgent. The harvest is now. Will we partake in it today? Will we partake in it this week? Or will we just be crippled by social norms? My first point today is this, if you have your notes, is that God is working and he wants you to be part. The primary command in verses 27 through 42 is to look up and see the harvest. But then, how do we do that? You know? How, how do we be part of God's work at our, at our work, at our homes, in our neighborhoods? I think it requires two things. There are two things in addition to not only Jesus pointing out the harvest, but there's two more things that Jesus actually points out. Number one, it is their constraint or what is keeping them from participating. And also number two, it is the choice that they must make. But notice what is keeping them, their constraint, what is keeping them from participating in God's work. Notice verse 27. At this point, notice that phrase is a temporal marker. At this point, his disciples came and they were amazed that, wait, they were amazed. Notice that word. I'm going to talk about it. They were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said to him, what do you seek? Or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come and see a man who told me all the things that I have done. What is she really telling the men in the city? Is this not the Christ? Is it she's telling how God has worked in her? Verse 30. They went out. From the city and we're coming to him. What is, what is keeping the disciples from being part of God's harvest and God's work? Their primary constraint is their social norms. What do they say? What are they amazed by? The social norm that's keeping them from seeing what God is actually doing right then is the fact that Jesus is speaking with a woman. Notice verse 27. They were amazed. That he was speaking to a woman. Now the English translation amazed there is good, but it's limited. Because the Greek word here for amazed is an imperfect tense verb. The imperfect tense tells me that it, they were amazed over and over again in the past. In other words, they were stewing on how could their rabbi, their teacher, the one that they love and respect, be speaking to a woman in public. And the Greek word here for amaze is the actual word itself can be best described and understood when it's used in another verse in Matthew chapter 8 verse 27. It is used in Matthew 
chapter 8, verse 27, it says this. Then the men, his disciples, were amazed and said, What kind of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Let me read that verse again. The men were amazed and said, What kind of man is this, that even the winds and the seas obey him? That verse captures this idea of their amazement. Let me just put it in perspective for you. How many of you ever gone fishing on Lake Gunnersville? Okay. So imagine, we wouldn't get this, but imagine you're on Lake Gunnersville in a fishing boat, and then a hurricane comes in, right? So you're, you're right out in the middle of Lake Gunnersville, and a hurricane comes in, and there's waves and all kinds of stuff. And then a fishing buddy that you're fishing with just stands up and, and just goes, be still. How would you react to that? <laughs> okay. If you ever, if I was fishing with you and you did that, I would be, Right? That's their mentality in verse 27, that they are absolutely stunned that their rabbi would be speaking to a woman in public. But why are they so amazed? Listen to this thought on Jewish social norms. It says this, in Judaism, it was believed that for a rabbi to speak with a woman was at best a waste of time and at worst a distraction from studying the Torah which could lead to eternal damnation. That she was a Samaritan made the Lord's actions even more stunning. And had they known, the disciples known, the woman's immoral background, the disciples would have been even more stunned. How could their master have anything to do with such a person? And he continues this. There was an important lesson for the disciples to learn. Although the gospel would be preached first to Israel, it would also cross all cultural barriers. Let me just put it in perspective. The end of John chapter 3, what is the tenet? What is the purpose of the end of John chapter 3? It is telling me that Jesus is from above, therefore he is above all. Since Jesus is from above, then he is what? John chapter 4, that he is Savior to all. Jesus, let me just say, Jesus is Savior to all who have ever lived. Not just the good people, not just the people who have grown up in church, not just the people who put on a good face for everybody, but that Jesus' gospel is sufficient to pay for the sins of the world, that he is Savior to all. So Jesus does not care about the social norms of the first century. He finds her soul more important to save than to save face with the culture. He is more concerned to share the gospel with a Samaritan woman and be an outcast, be questioned by his own disciples. Friends, we should be like Jesus, that we would value souls more than social norms. That we would value souls more than the opinions of other people. That we would share the gospel even in the face of being questioned. Even in the face of maybe changing your relationship with a loved one. Jesus here is Savior to the world. He does not care about their social constructs and their social culture. He cares more about presenting the soul-quenching gospel to a woman that has been outcast from her society than he does what his disciples think. My question for you today is right now is what are the social norms that are constraining you from sharing the gospel? What is holding you back from presenting Jesus at your workplace, at your home, 
Because God is far more concerned to save souls than save face. I don't really know if I understand this thought fully. But that God wants to use me and you to present the gospel to the ends of the earth. If I believe and I know that God is sovereign, that somehow, some way, I believe that he may be able to, outside of human depravity and sinfulness, be able to share the gospel. But for some reason, God invites me in to participate in the spiritual harvest of souls. And friends, there is a harvest outside. So many times we're so consumed with the problems that we have, the problems of the world, the locusts that are causing issues in our culture, and we completely miss what the Lord is doing in our city. We completely miss what the Lord is doing at our work. We completely miss what God is doing in our homes. Will we be the disciples or will we be the Samaritan woman? Will we be the disciples that are blinded by culture, or would it be the Samaritan woman who, are, who is so passionate and changed by the gospel that she can't help but tell people about Jesus? My second point today is that God is working and he wants you to be part. So we must look past social norms. But then notice the choice that they must make in order to harvest souls. They must move past social norms, and they then must make a choice. Notice verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Notice they commanded him to do something. Rabbi, teacher, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Verse 34, Jesus said, my food, notice that, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The primary command is for them to look up and see the harvest. Their primary constraint, what is keeping them from participating in the work of God in the first century is their social norms. And then what is their primary choice? In other words, what must they choose to be mindful of in order to be part of the harvest of souls? To do the Father's will. The primary choice that they must make is to be a part or to do the Father's will. But notice, one of the things I love about Jesus' language is oftentimes he's not very clear in what he means. He uses a metaphor to them to understand what it means to do God's will. Notice the metaphor. Verse 34. And Jesus said to them, my food. It's a metaphor. He's speaking figuratively. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus uses food as a metaphor for doing God's will. So let's just ask the question. How are the two related? How are food and doing God's will related? How are they linked? How are they connected? Allow me to ask you the question. How many of you have already thought about food today? Okay, every, everybody probably should raise it. Let me ask, how many of you have thought about food today? Okay, okay, thank you. How many of you have thought about food twice today? Okay, how many of you, okay, maybe I won't keep asking and keep elevating that, okay, but how many of you are thinking about food right now? Okay, obviously, because Byron mentioning it, okay, we're thinking about, okay, let's just say it this way. Food consumes us. 
We think about food all the time, right? When you're driving, right before you sleep, you want to think about that midnight snack. You want to go visit the fridge. You think about when you first get up in the morning. You think about it in church. You think about it at work. You think about getting up and going to the vending machine and getting some food. Food can constantly consumes us. I believe it is the same for the will of God. That the will of God should consume us just like food consumes us. That we should be so mindful of doing God's will just as we are mindful of being consumed by food. Imagine the spiritual harvest. Imagine what we could do for the kingdom of God if we thought about God's work as much as we thought about food. I think that's what he's saying here. My food is to do the will of whom sent me. His, what consumes him is food. What fuels him is doing the will of God. And here, according to John chapter 4, the will of the Father is to reap a harvest of souls. My point today is this. Point number three is that God is working and he wants you to be part. So look past social norms and look to God's will. What's the next question we have to answer? How do we find God's will, right? How do we find out what God wants us to do on a daily basis? That question is kind of like asking the question, how do we cook food? With this metaphor, right? And the question is basically like, how do we cook food? That if we analyze it too much, then we will never cook and find it. Now, I know that volumes and volumes and volumes of dissertations of books like Experiencing God and dissertations in seminary, I read a few of them when I was in seminary, there are books and volumes dedicated to the cause and the topic of how to discern God's will, and I will not add to it this morning. My thought is this. That if we thought about God's will as much as we thought about food, then I believe that God's will will become much more evident. If we thought about food as much as we thought about God's will, then God's will in our day-to-day lives will become much more evident. So this is what I want you to do this week, and I'm going to participate with you in this together I want to put an image in your mind. I hope that one day that this preacher up here would be as consumed for the will of God as I am for food. I do love food. I'm a big guy, okay? So this is what I want to do this week, and I want you to participate with me, that every time you think of food, every time you think about a snack, a glass of milk, water, every time you think about food, I want you to ask the question at the same time, Lord, what is your will? Burger in one hand, question in the other. Burger, ask the Lord, right now, Lord, at this very hour, what is your will? Because what I see here in this text is that the food, the fuel, what consumes Jesus is doing the will of the Father at all times. Today, God is inviting us into his work, and he wants us to be part of it, so we must look past the social norms, and we must look to the will of the Father. 
as I head towards the application section, the question I have is, so what? How do, how do, we, you know, how do we take this passage and apply it to our life? And what I find in John chapter 4 is that as I have unpacked it for the third week in a row, I find that this story is very applicable in a bunch of different ways. And I'm just going to say it this way. I, I think what I would hope is that we would not be like the disciples, who are so consumed with self, so consumed with what people think, so consumed with the social norms around them that they fail to see that they can be part of the work of God. Friends, a harvest is before us, and God wants you to be part. My application, number one, is this, that I want you to grasp the thought that the harvest is before you. That out there in the world... Out there in your neighborhoods, out there in your family, out there at your work, at your school, out there at the grocery store, out there at the gas station, that there are souls that need to hear Jesus. But they don't just have to hear it with our words. Let's remember that they can also hear it with our love and with our life, with our love for one another and with the deeds that we do. We don't always have to say out there standing with a microphone preaching the gospel. We probably should, but also we can share the gospel with our, with our love and our life. There are people out there starving for Jesus, starving for the living water of the gospel, that they have a hole in their soul that only God is meant to fill, that God is working in our land, God is working in our nation, and the people right now are probably more fearful than they've been in years. The harvest is ripe. The season is now. Grasp the fact that there is a harvest before you. I want you to think about a town in your life, a town in your life, about a weekly place that you see multiple people at one time. Perhaps the town in your life is at work, perhaps it's at school, perhaps it's in your own home with non-believers. I'm not sure what town you have, but what I would encourage you to do is to then look at that town, look at that place where you see multiple non-believers and just begin praying about how to share the gospel with them and application number two is this that grasp the fact that god wants to use you If God can use a Samaritan woman who has been outcast from her society, who's been married five times and now is living with a boyfriend, if God can use this half-breed, if God can use this woman who is so crippled by shame and sin that she would just avoid it altogether by going at the hottest part of the day, by walking a further distance, if God can use her, then God can use you. If God can use her, God can use you. And let me just, God wants to use us. God wants to use you and me, but what must we do? We must be willing to look past our social boundaries, our social norms, and we must be willing to be consumed for the will of God as we are for food. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I present this every week. If you do not know him, then what does the Bible say? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God because we have sinned, because we have made mistakes, because we lie, cheat, and steal, because we covet, because we hate, because we're selfish. What does that do? It separates us from the presence of a perfect God and that we are deserving of eternal damnation, what we would call is hell. But 
But God, in his infinite love and mercy, he sent his son, John 3, 16. But God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That God loved the world, so he sent his son to be the payment for our sin. So it's our situation, and then God's solution, right? And what's amazing, I, I, I say this almost a week. I, I, I preach the gospel every week, and then it's never gotten old. Because the fact is, is that Jesus died for my sins, and that he, gives, he turns around and gives it to me as a gift. He tells me, you can't earn my affection, you can't earn my love, you can't earn heaven. But that salvation, eternal life, eternal aliveness is free. It is a gift. And that we only unravel by faith. If you've never believed in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, then what are you waiting on? <laughs> now is a good time. The harvest is plentiful. It is urgent. Bow with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. Um, Lord, what a reminder that we have in John chapter 4 that you would use this woman who has been shamed by her culture and that you would see her as valuable, that you would see her as a soul worthy to save and that you would use her, a broken, sinful human being, to reap a harvest of a whole city, whole town. Lord, that thought escapes me because I realize my own sin, my own imperfections, and the thought is amazing that you would use a wretch like me to bring in a harvest of souls to further your kingdom and your plan here on earth. Lord, I just pray that we would see the fact that you are working in our culture, that we would not be consumed for the locusts, we would not be consumed for what is wrong, but we would be consumed for how you are working in our time. And, Lord, that we would be part of that. And, Lord, I pray that in order to be part with that, uh, that you would allow us to overlook our insecurities, overlook our culture, overlook our inadequacies. And, Lord, that we would constantly find your will day in, day out, every moment. Lord, thank you for my friends and my family. It is a uh, privilege and honor to be pastor of this church. I feel uh, totally humbled and inadequate, and um, but that's why we need grace. <laughs> and Lord, I just thank you for this church. I thank you for those that aren't able to be here. I thank you for their faithfulness. I thank you for the, the men and women that lead here so diligently. And I just pray that you would be glorified in our lives outside of today and inside. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>